Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Investigate beautifully detailed scenes of the 1920s, finding out what happened to her or your in the game, sister. With hundreds of mind-teasing puzzles, the next clue is always within reach. Search for hidden objects from the parlours of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. Each chapter uncovers a collection of dazzling hidden object spectacles for you to solve, and I've had a lot of fun. Currently on chapter 7, making progress little by little, tapping away on my phone to get all the puzzle pieces in place. While searching for the murderer, or whatever happened to your sister, you get to decorate your own island with gardens and buildings and chat and play with other Others by joining a detective club. It's a lot of fun and very social. I play while I'm on the train. It keeps me active between my journeys to London and I love the time limits that are pushing me to find those clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. So that sensorial impulse is something that I absolutely have always associated with the right and with this particularly sanctimonious um, element on the right that I find just repulsive. And to see that coming now from like my side has been a trip and not in a good way. Hello again from the tropical climate of Buenos Aires, where I stand atop a roof overlooking the sprawling enterprise of this melting 40 degree or 100 degree if you're from the States, metropolis. It's quite an extraordinary heat and an extraordinary place. I'm out here for a couple of weeks visiting my girlfriend's family. And if you listen to last week's amazing episode with Sean Williams, um, I'm actually still just standing in the same rooftop and just recording this next intro and outro for cats. I'm showing you a little bit how the sausage is made, which uh, might be intriguing for some people and might ruin the sort of Hollywood uh, glamour of this podcast um, but yes my word there have been some great guests in recent weeks even though I am recording this now about a month or two before you'll actually get it I've been very lucky with who's come on and today is no exception it's Kat Rosenfield an acclaimed author of young adult and adult fiction who also writes about the culture wars politics and all sorts of on point and contentious societal issues but what got Kat embroiled in this nether region betwixt young adult writer and political commentator lies at the crux of this episode. Feeling the claws of censorship closing in around the young adult fiction realm, Kat popped her pen above the parapet in defiance. She maintains that whether people really are cancelled or not, the actual cancel culture is very real and that much of it festers in the circles of young adult fiction where the intentions of authors are often ignored or picked apart in search of offence as fanciful as the fantasy literature that pervades the genre. Things all came to a head in 2017 when the young adult industry lost their minds over a book called The Black Witch, which imbued some of its baddies with, well, baddie traits like racism in a stratified society. 
Such is the stringency of the self-appointed social media monitors that even to make the baddies bad set alarm bells ringing, compelling Katz to compose a piece against the sensorial orthodoxy. Basically, everyone was having a go at this writer for making the baddies racist because it showed racism. And Kat wrote an article exposing this censorship. She now writes regularly about the crevices in the fabric of our culture wars. A quick look at her author profile on the popular publication Unheard paints a portrait of everything from masks and vaccinations to Hillary Clinton and Woody Allen, which we'll talk about today. Kat describes herself as on the left, but is concerned that the sanctimonious censorship of the right is now infesting the side that once took pride in its liberal values and tolerance for plurality of thought. And amongst all this, she's just written a new adult fiction book called No One Will Miss Her, a psychological suspense in which a girl from a small town meets a gorgeous Instagram influencer from the big city with a murderous twist that will shock even the most savvy reader. Link in the show notes and you can find that wherever you get your books. Do follow Kat on at Kat Rosenfield on Twitter and Instagram. I'm on andrewgold underscore OK. Come say hello. Catch our bonus chat on patreon.com slash andrewgold where we talk about her favourite words, swear words, jobs and what she'd say at the pearly gates. But now I believe it's time to start the episode, is it not? I find Kat in good spirits being kept company by a purring cat and a sulking dog called Winston. Yeah, that's Winston. He's a golden doodle. Yeah, he's um, he's mad at me because I won't take him outside to play in the snow. Will you take him later? Yeah, probably. If he's good. <laughs> or my husband will. Is that now a cat? Um, yeah, so this is a cat. Yeah, um, I'm sorry. This is <laughs> extremely unprofessional. No. It's how It's how the world should be with animals and stuff. Yeah. Whereabouts this are you is, based? This is how right? I live. <laughs> I'm in Connecticut. Um, yeah, which is, uh, just so outside of New York, um, just about an hour's, uh, train right outside of New York, go away. Um, so yeah, we, uh, my husband and I moved out here 10 years ago before everybody else, um, fled during the pandemic to the town that we live in. And so now real estate is insane, but it's all good. I've just been looking at pictures of Connecticut. I, it's like, I don't know anything about it except like how to spell it. I can, I know there's like that extra C in there that you don't expect. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, <laughs> I got it. I got it. Thanks for joining me, by the way. Wasn't that nice, the John Ronson stuff he was saying about you? That was very, very nice. Yeah. I don't deserve it, but uh, I appreciate it very much. <laughs> no, he's cool. I now mention him in every episode because somehow stuff goes back to him. Like he's got like a network. We, I just had Amanda Knox yesterday and she was like, yeah, John Ronson came to my wedding. And I was like, oh, how, he's everywhere. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he went with Katie Herzog, I think. They, um, they went together. Oh. <laughs> There's a whole little like community of kind of weirdos who've all um, you know coalesced online and now occasionally attend social events in real life. So that's fun. So weird, these people. Well, tell me about you, Kat. What's going on? Well, tell me a bit a bit about your background. Uh, oh my goodness. Um, let's see. I uh, you mean as a writer? Like. Hmm. I think so. Okay. Um. So I decided. Um. 
I guess it was just a little more than 10 years ago. Um, I had I had graduated college. I had started working as a publicist. Um, turns out that I'm really, really bad at that. And so um, I was good at writing press releases, and that was basically it. And so I, I kind of realized that I needed to start to try to find a way to write full time. Um, I started taking copywriting classes. I was working on a novel. I was freelancing. I was basically doing anything that would pay. Uh, and I had ideas about becoming a copywriter. It's sort of a, you know, a way to have a salary and health insurance and so on, um, you know, without completely embracing like the life of the artist. And, um, and then the economy imploded. This was 2008. So uh, what ended up happening instead was that I just kind of started hustling. Um, I kept doing what I was doing, freelancing. I would do any work that paid. Um, I finished my novel. I managed to sell it. Um, some of the freelance gigs that I had turned into more formal employment. I had been writing for an MTV blog uh, about young Hollywood gossip. And when that blog shut down, they brought me over to the main site as a news reporter. Um, and so I basically fell backwards into doing first entertainment journalism and writing young adult fiction. My first, uh, my first novel was a young adult book. And um, I turned around, you know, 10 years later and was like, I've been hustling for 10 years. It's great. You know, um, you know, I, I managed to make a livelihood and a career out of it. And the only downside is that I don't really get anywhere near enough sleep. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, around 2016, um, we elected a certain president and it really, the, the cultural impact of the Trump presidency um, and the impact on media, you know, it's it's not something that I thought was going to affect me at all. I was working as an entertainment reporter. I was writing about movies and television, but it just bled into everything. Um, and I ended up falling into this place as a writer where I, I just spend a lot of time analyzing the place where pop culture and politics intersect. Uh, and I find it fascinating. And since I'm also still writing fiction, um, I just I, I see it all as a way to sort of ask the same questions from a variety of different angles. And that's where I am, you know, career wise at this point. Man, yeah, it all kicked off, didn't it with the culture stuff. And I read uh, your fascinating article about yeah, do you want to take us through what what happened with, you know, the Black Witch and what the Black Witch is and the reviews and stuff? Sure. Um, I'm going to have to, I'll do my best to, to keep it short with the background, but it is a twisted backstory. So young adult fiction was sort of an early incubator for a type of um, media and culture criticism that is now if you're at all immersed in like the sort of media art culture publishing discourse you're familiar with this particular brand of concern about diversity it's very obsessed with representation um it's very obsessed with the idea that stories need to hew to certain political progressive mores um you know they need to send the right message. And this started in young adult fiction, um, which is often a sort of, if you're, you're going to have a moral panic, YA and the content aimed at, at young people, at teenagers and children is often where it'll get its start because it's easy to gain a foothold with this concern about some vulnerable young person, some child being damaged in some way by something they read or saw on television. And like, when we had a moral panic about violence in video games, same deal. It's like, what if some kid thinks that stealing cars and doing murders is cool because they played this video game? Um, and so 
there was at first a genuine and I think very well-intentioned push to improve diversity in YA fiction, which like publishing is very much dominated by um, white heterosexual women um, for reasons that I would say have a lot more to do with who can work in publishing and who can afford to work there than it does with like explicit discrimination against racial minorities. Um, but that's a sort of another conversation. Needless to say, um, this was a real problem in that there is this overrepresentation of white women, especially in YA. Um, and so this push began to, you know, diversify the stories, to have more and different kinds of stories being told by more and different kinds of people, um, you know, diverse characters, but also diverse authors was really what we wanted to see. And I was in that world publishing for that audience at this time. This was about 2014. It was really kicked off by the um, the Ferguson protests and the Black Lives Matter movement that emerged from those Um and so it sort of evolved from there. By 2016, it had taken a sort of a different shape as often happens with movements like this. You had a contingent of people who realized that there was a lot of fear and a lot of guilt floating around in this world and that they could really harness it and they could weaponize it um, to destroy the careers of, of people who were either their competition, who they just didn't like, and also to kind of aggrandize their own careers. And so, this is now um, coming from 2016 and 2017, you started having a lot of these campaigns that were nominally about stopping harmful fiction from being published. I'm using air quotes there because, you know, the definition of harm obviously is kind of nebulous. Um, but, you know, really stemmed from these sort of continued embroglios where, you know, there would be some kind of personal grudge at play. You know, somebody with influence in the YA world wanted to take down somebody else who had less influence. These campaigns often targeted debut authors who were sort of more vulnerable. They had less of a platform. They didn't have established careers. It was much easier to knock them down. And you would have these, you know, very organized kind of strategic um, movements to like torpedo the readings of a book before it came out to have it tarred as problematic, racist, sexist, you know, homophobic, whatever, um, harmful in some way to, you know, the marginalized and vulnerable kids who were supposed to be reading these books. So The Black Witch um, was something I reported on because it was such a great kind of a case study and a microcosm for what was happening in the community and how these campaigns could really spiral out of control in a way that was quite disconnected from like any kind of valid criticism of the content of the book. Um, people would just get really excited about crushing someone and it would go wild. So The Black Witch was a fantasy novel, first in a series, and like many fantasies, it was sort of big on, on hammering a message of tolerance, an anti-bigotry message by using this fictional world um, full of, you know, fictional kind of fantasy races um, as an allegory for, you know, contemporary bigotry. And one woman read this book and I don't want to speculate too much about other people's motives here, but um, this was at a time when it was clear that you could, if you positioned yourself correctly in this space, and if you managed to get the right people on board, you could get a lot of attention for calling out somebody's, you know, 
problematic work. You, you could just really like you could hitch your wagon to that star and you could go very, very far that way. So she wrote, I think, a 9000 word review, um, just decrying wow. the book for its horrifying racism and homophobia and you know you know everything that could be wrong with a book apparently was wrong with this one and as is the case with most of these things there was a lot of conflation of um depiction or exploration with endorsement you would have a character who was explicitly supposed to be a bad racist saying and doing things that were bad and racist and this was seen as somehow like a trojan horse for the author's actual views um and what i wanted to do when i started writing about this was not to just you know explore the mechanism of this you know, this one ridiculous campaign against this book, um, but to show what kind of impact it was having on the community, because it did really have a chilling effect. You know, there were these very explicit calls for censorship, although nobody wanted to call it that. Um, people saying, we're going to petition to get this book forcibly edited. We're going to petition to get this book canceled. And the thing that happened that I, I thought was most disturbing was that you had adult authors, you know, going after their teen readers, uh, you know, if a, a teenager online said that she wanted to read The Black Witch and determine for herself if she thought it was as problematic as everybody said it was, she would be excoriated by these like 40 year old writers, her heroes would, would call her a racist and tell her that she was part of the problem. So I wanted to, you know, to get at it from all sides. I realize I'm going on at length here. I'm really sorry. Um, no, it's really interesting. <laughs> so, you know, I reported on that, I talked to um, a teenage girl who was who had not read the book was but but was a very vocal part of the campaign to bring it down um, I talked to a bunch of authors about the effect that this was having on their ability to you know to write freely you know how they felt about trying to produce work in this environment um, I talked to some people who thought that this was maybe a flawed way of pushing the conversation in an otherwise good direction um, and that was that was the piece itself um the reaction after it was published was a hell of an awakening um people in the y community were very very upset that i had um you know shown a light on what they were up to um everybody else who was outside the community uh i mean this is the most viral thing i've ever written probably still um people really were fascinated by the sort of the tortured drama of this world um and it's kind of amazing to me that it's four years later and i'm still talking about it so i wonder if that's also because um i feel like that sort of and i know nobody likes to use the word woke anymore because it's so simplistic and i understand that but uh, for for most listeners would that i guess they'd associate you know that's a that would be woke the whole the, the the young adult stuff that was going on yeah and i feel like the vast majority of people know that a lot of that stuff not all not all of it of course and it's well-meaning but some of it's well-meaning a lot of that stuff is ridiculous i think most people know that but nobody wants to sort of stand up and say so so when somebody does whether it was you in that article or somebody like uh, helen pluck rose or uh, whoever it might be and they or even john ronson actually even though he's very very neutral and very careful just to say hang on this is too much people just love it because they're like oh finally someone stood up and said what most of us are thinking mm -hmm. yeah yeah i did get that sense you know that there was a sort of a mass exhalation of like okay now maybe we can talk about this a little bit yeah I mean, at the moment, there's the, I was going to ask you, so I've got in my notes, because I, I wrote these a few weeks ago, and about like, you know, 
that kind of scrutiny if Harry Potter came out today. And I realized after writing that question, like that Harry Potter is under that kind of scrutiny. Obviously, there was that John Stewart just a few days ago, although he's now sort of retracted that, but he said the goblins were seen as uh, problematic because they're anti-Semitic. Were you offended by goblins? I was not offended by goblins. Um, I... I, I tend to, well, I mean, I think actually the J.K. Rowling thing is interesting because it's such a good example of how people want to target the author. You know, they will have a grudge against the author for whatever reason. In this case, you know, J.K. Rowling is perceived by certain parties to be uh, transphobic. And what this thing about the goblins you know i mean this is this is just opportunistic this is just how we're going to dress up the latest attempt to do damage to her professionally um because apparently you know the charges of transphobia aren't doing enough um you know but i mean this is this is what always happens um and it's what happens not just in the arts but with the dynamic of online pylons generally where somebody will be deemed a target and then anybody who's ever had any interaction with them or or even if they haven't um you know people understand that they can get clout by adding to the pylon by dunking on this person um and you see this play out you know on a large scale with stuff like people getting upset about the goblins in harry potter you know 10 years after the fact and saying well i now realize you know that they're anti-semitic or whatever um it also happens you know in in the sort of american media sphere periodically there will be you know somebody will be getting called out on twitter for having written an article that landed the wrong way amongst you know the people who kind of lead this conversation and suddenly anybody who ever had any interaction with this person whatsoever is coming out of the woodwork to say i too have a story you know i was was in the bathroom with this person at the office we shared and they peed and they didn't wash their hands afterwards and you know they're yeah. a monster um so it's yeah there's this real opportunism to the entire thing that I personally find kind of distasteful. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5hourenergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. The J.K. Rowling thing, as you say, in particular, because she was, before she came out with the comments quite recently, which were controversial for whatever reason, she was a beacon of progressive she was like their thing she was the progressivism stuff it was like Dumbledore's gay and this and that and everything's progressive and lovely and and now she's very quickly become the enemy it reminds me a little bit of Caitlyn Jenner uh who recently said something about like sports like that she doesn't think uh sports what was it that that trans women should play with women in sports and then all of a sudden mm -hmm. she was like the bad person caitlin jenner having having previously been the good person um and everyone was having a go at her including like sarah silverman was really angry at her mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think there are a lot of um you know like bewildered unhappy now adults with uh, deathly hallows tattoos that they're probably desperately <laughs> trying to cover up with something else man it's so crazy it's really seeped into the culture and i don't know where do you stand on jk rowling where do i stand mm. 
let's see. <laughs> you're, really, you're trying to get me canceled, aren't you? Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, you can't. I let's see. You, we can get into cancel culture in a minute, can't we? Because obviously <laughs> there's that thing of like, if you own being canceled, I think you can sort of actually go through, you can pass through that barrier and come out the other side. Maybe. Yeah, I, I would say for a variety of reasons, I'm I'm not really susceptible to that type of thing anymore. Although who knows, maybe I could still be ruined for, for something <laughs> or other. Um, but JK Rowling, I think, you know, I, I don't know that I would agree with the way she's phrased everything or that I necessarily, I mean, a lot of what she's reacting to just doesn't really exist in the States, you know, so there's like this self ID law. I understand that. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for a dull moment. Um, so there's this there's this self-ID law, I understand, that, you know, is being passed in the UK that would allow, for instance, um, you know, a, a male person who identifies as a woman who's um, committed, say, sexual assault and who's going to prison to be housed in a women's prison, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I don't think we have quite that level, like, you know, at the level of legislation being passed, I don't think we're quite there with this. Um, you know, the, there's there's more like pushback happening in the form of these bathroom bills and so on, um, you know, here in the US. So in some ways, you know, she's responding to something that's not all that salient to my life as an American. Um, but for that reason, I'm hesitant to criticize, you know, her for, and, and the thing about it that frustrates me and that I think, you know, is, important about what she's doing is this stuff should be talked about before it gets passed into law and trying to silence the conversation, which appears to be what's happening. Um, you know, I can't, I can't support that. Um, you know, she, whether you like what she thinks or not, her feelings are shared by, I would wager not even like a small majority, but a large majority of people, people have qualms about this stuff, especially when you start talking about things like, trans women and uh, competing against natal females in sports. This is something where if you spend all your time online, you can imagine that that's a practice that enjoys like widespread popularity and only crazy bigots have an objection to it. But the, the way this skews like in actual life amongst normal people, it's completely the opposite. It's a really, really unpopular policy position. And I mean, it's important to discuss this stuff, not just for the sake of, of coming to a mutual understanding of what is true and what is right, but because if you're an activist on the side of, for instance, you know, trans women's inclusion in sport, and you try to um, quash this conversation, you're going to get walloped in the face with it eventually. You know, you're going to be blindsided by how unpopular your views actually are outside this incredibly tiny circle of people who, you know, who very vocally support them, but it's a tiny, tiny circle. Although I was trying to get you cancelled by bringing up trans so early and all that stuff, it is actually the one topic I've completely, uh, you know, stayed away from for this podcast so far because it's just like, it's so toxic. And I've done stuff on like, yeah, all sorts of different things that should be like outrageously controversial. Uh, I've interviewed a pedophile, like everything. But I know that like the trans thing, that's where I need to be really, really careful. Like, why has that gone above everything else? Um, I mean, in terms of the reason that people are so reluctant to talk about it, I think that the people who are attached to the, sort of the radical extreme of the trans movement who, um, are just are capable of making a person's life very unpleasant. And if you 
unless you're like, unless you thrive on conflict, um, you know, who, who wants to experience that? I mean, I wrote a very, um, I mean, not even about Rowling's views at all, but an exploration of, of, you know, what it means culturally that, um, her address was posted online and many people were sort of defending this or finding ways to defend it by suggesting that like, it wasn't really a doxing or it doesn't count because she's so privileged that she'll never experience any real fear or real threat from having her address posted and so on. Um, and, you know, I wanted to uh, to write for the new statement about, you know, just what does it say about us that like this is where the conversation goes now and something that we used to uniformly agree was a bad practice is aimed at a target who we really want to see destroyed. And so we'll, you know, we'll make excuses for it. Um, I had probably the most unpleasant pleasant three days of my life online after that article was posted. And I wasn't even coming out in support of Rowling. I just stepped a little too close to her as a topic. And um, it's one of the few times in my life that I've received actual threatening messages. So yeah, you know, I think, and it's, I mean, to be clear, it's not like I was frightened by them, but I sure didn't enjoy it. Um, I understand why people who don't do this for a living would absolutely not see any value in opening their mouths about it was it sort of mostly men or women or was it a mix attacking you you really are trying to get cancelled um, <laughs> i'm just intrigued <laughs> um you know i i actually i did not think to investigate that hmm. um yeah yeah i did not think to investigate that so i have no idea only I'm only thinking because I'm trying. I'm imagining. I'm so sorry you went through that as well. It's awful when people start doing that. That feeling. It's like the like the floor comes out from beneath you, like the rugs pulled away. It's like you're falling. I've had some parts, some things, a bit like that in the past as well, where everyone and another person, another person, you're just sort of waiting for somebody to sort of come to your defense and or or, or to stop all this happening. It's not a nice a, a nice feeling. So yeah, I, I'm I'm really sorry you went through that and. It's, after those few days, was that sort of it? Oh, sure. I mean, people eventually move on to something else. Um, I think I ended up locking my account, which I sometimes do just because, you know, if you do that, people don't have access to you, then, you know, they'll just, they'll get bored. Um, and they'll find somewhere else to go. Um, you know, I just realized when you were saying, like, were these people men or women? I'm, I, you know, judging by their avatars, most of them were like anime cartoon characters. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, yeah, those people. who knows? Uh... But I mean, that's a good, uh, sort of a good litmus test for, you know, how real is this? It's not that, you know, what happens online can't hurt and it can't be unpleasant. Um, but that discourse is so divorced from anything that I would hear if I left my house and like went out into the world and sat at a bar and talked to people, even people who were very progressive. Um, the, the tone and the content and the substance of the conversation online is just, it's, it's on like another planet. Yeah, it's insane, isn't it? I suppose I was also wondering if it were men or women, because I'm just thinking there's a lot of sort of men targeting women online. There's a lot of sexism. That I wonder if the J.K. Rowling stuff had been said by a man, whether she'd be getting or he'd be getting so much abuse. You know, do you think there's some of that at play? Oh, I mean, I think that there is an entire, it's a sort of a type of guy, um, this cohort of progressive, nominally feminist men who are just waiting for a woman on the left to step out of line um, so that they can just take the gloves off and pound at her. I've, I've seen that guy. 
I hate that. I did I did a documentary at one point in Argentina looking into abortion, and I particularly remember there were so many times when our team we were trying to interview women at a march, and the men would jump in and start talking for them. And I thought, you're that guy, aren't you? You know that guy. Yeah, yeah. The you know the the male feminist who wants to take up all the air in the room. Mm -hmm. Ah, oh, those guys. What? Um, what does this all say about, because obviously another thing everyone's talking about all the time is cancel culture and people are saying it, it doesn't really exist and all that. This book, uh, The Black Witch, went up to number one in the charts despite like the outrageous levels of abuse. So what do you think that says about cancel culture? Um, I think that it doesn't say much about the culture. I mean, the culture is the reason that that campaign became a thing and that it was able to attract as much attention and support as it did. Um, you know, the fact that sometimes these attempted cancellations fail uh, just goes to show that sometimes people don't manage to destroy everybody they set out to destroy. Um, and, you know, I mean, this is an element of the conversation that I find very frustrating. Um, you know, it's, there's, there's this clip from The Simpsons that always circulates online when people are having this conversation, whereas this guy is like, attempted murder, what even is that? Do they give a prize for attempted chemistry? Um, and it's like, you know, it's, it's sort of the same vibe where it's like, we tried to destroy this person and we failed, hence cancel culture isn't real. I mean, the, the culture is the reason that you tried and the reason that you thought you might actually be able to do it. Is, is cancel culture particularly more frustrating right now for a lot of centrists because it used to happen under the guise of maybe religious conservatism? So maybe it's always been there and now it's happening from people who are trying to suggest they're more virtuous and cultural and left and intelligent and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's frustrating to a lot of us on the left, too. Um, you know, I know that you were wondering where my politics fall. You know, I've been a, a liberal all my life, and it's only just recently that that label kind of ceased to mean anything. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, I've definitely felt the earth moving under my feet. And there's this incredible hostility um, to people who are perceived as questioning the orthodoxy that I, you know, I grew up, I was a teenager in the 90s. I've always associated that very much with the religious right and the moral majority, you know, who was trying to, you know, who, who you know, was was trying to put labels on the CDs, you know, that the, like the lyrics were going to cause teen suicides or whatever. Yeah. Um, so that sensorial impulse is something that I absolutely have always associated with the right and with this particularly sanctimonious um, element on the right that I find just repulsive. And to see that coming now from like my side has been a trip and not in a good way. Yeah. Well, they, and they seem to hate because I, I would sort of align myself with, with you and how you describe yourself. I would align myself with that. I would like to anyway. Um, and they really wind me up almost i almost find myself getting angrier with those people who are sort of politically economically maybe the same as me uh but who want to censor and ban i'm almost more annoyed by them than i am by actual like right-wing nazis and i find that they're also more annoyed by me the the, the sort of so to speak woke left or the, you know uh than, than they are by actual real nazis is it sort of like the closer you are, the more you hate each other almost. Maybe, I mean, to, the way that I always have thought about it is, you know, this is my house. You know, you're like, you're messing up my house. I don't hear what's happening in a house down the street where the right wing people live. Like those aren't my people. I'm never going to vote for their politicians. Um, but this is close to home. You know, this is a, 
in, in some cases, you know, messing up movements that I care about. Um, it's getting in the way of passing policies that I care about. And so, you know, of course, I, I take it much more seriously. I think it works the same way on the right, too. Um, you know, they'll, they might use whatever the latest sort of sensorial campaign is on the left against the left, you know, to, to demonstrate how crazy and insane they are, just the way that, you know, that we do with people on the right who want to, oh, I don't know, jail women for having abortions. Um, but there's also this, you know, in the U.S., there's this machine in place that, you know, will... Um, cause immense consequences for Republicans, for instance, who, you know, who didn't go all in on Donald Trump. What kind of young adult writer do now? Because I feel like just a few years ago, maybe they were told you need to write about more diverse characters. And now they're being told, well, if you do that, you're suggest you're sort of appropriating and you're suggesting you know more about those, those people's backgrounds. So what if you're a white female or male or whatever writer, what do you do? Um, write adult books. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I don't write YA anymore. Um, you know, it, not just because of this, but I can't say that it's not a contributing factor. It's, it's quite difficult at this point. And the, as a genre, um, you know, the young adult world is contracting. There are fewer books being published and fewer contracts being awarded every year. Um, so there's just less room to, be successful in that space in the first place. Um, and, you know, at the moment, because there is this real kind of identitarian obsession happening, it's, it's just, it's harder, you know, it's, it's harder to not just to have your work accepted for publication, but to make it through the process um, having produced something good without it necessarily, you know, coming under fire. Um, I've moved away also from covering the YA beat. So I'm less familiar at this point with what's happening in that world. Maybe they've calmed down a little bit. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, uh, it was having this spasm that I think just makes it very difficult to engage in quality creative expression because the fear of being canceled for lack of a better word um really gets in the way of of doing that kind of work i remember tarantino saying that he thinks these these things come in waves and there's like 10 years of like intense censorship and then 10 years where it's sort of liberal and 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 you know he said he's, he think, talk, talks about movie periods where that was happening and obviously as we were saying before it, we were used to it happening on the conservative right so that's why it's so shocking it happens on the left. I mean, are you positive at all for the for the future? Optimistic at all that there'll be a bit more space for people to write freely and not worry about being censored? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's Tarantino is correct that you know we we go through ups and downs with this stuff in Hollywood. You know, you had the sort of freak out over communism in the studio system followed by a period of much more experimental and exploratory filmmaking. And then you had, you know, the 1980s to early 90s spasm of political correctness followed by, you know, this era of like, you know, raunch comedy um, and, and raunch in general was suddenly a celebrated thing. And now we're here. So I think you can certainly observe a cycle happening. And for that reason, yeah, I am hopeful. On the other hand, 
I do feel that the advent of the internet and especially social media has changed things in ways that we still don't completely understand. So what I mostly am more than optimistic is just kind of curious to see what happens. <laughs> curious, watching the world burn around us and I don't know, maybe <laughs> maybe things will be will be good. I wonder sometimes, this is just a theory of mine and I don't know anything, but this, I just, I, I wonder if it's a case of like a highly educated group and you'll find that in literature, of course, whether young adult, adult fiction, whatever, this is, these are going to be very well-educated people who like to sort of, uh, I don't know. I feel like they hate, uh, uneducated people. Um, and, and that I wonder about this a little bit, like, so the word for black people for a while was colored and, and my mm -hmm. grandparents used to say that. And I was always like, grandpa, Oh my God, you're racist, and that kind of thing. And it it sort of it it gradually sort of phased out, and then only like the people who were like older and were further away from education were still using that word, and they were sort of you know pushed out and excluded. And it finally got to a point where I think, at least in the UK, I think every single person of the seventy million in the UK finally knew not to use that word, and then it moved back to of color. And I thought, is this people trying to trick people who are less educated than them? I mean, I think it just, it serves as this, it's like knowing what fork to use, right? It's, you yeah. know, a way for members of the in-group to recognize each other and to, yeah, I mean, bond in their superiority over the sort of unwashed, uneducated. And I mean, you can, you can be literally an educated person, but if you're not staying completely current on all of the language and the rules are constantly evolving in, you know, sometimes counterintuitive ways, seemingly on purpose in an attempt to kind of catch people out in this way. Um, yeah, you know, you're not, you're not going to know how to talk this, um, there's this, it's like a, a regional dialect that not everybody has access to. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's interesting as somebody like, I feel like I could speak that language, but I'm not particularly interested in doing so. But just knowing that I have, you know, in a moment where I was around a group of people who maybe were sort of looking for something to get upset about that I could avoid stepping on one of those landmines. Um, you know, that's, uh, I hate this word, but it's a, a sort of a privilege. Yeah. You know? I feel bad doing that, catching someone out. Uh, I think it felt good when I was younger. I think when I was like 16 or 17, it felt really good. Like you've said the wrong thing there. Oh, you did that to people? I think oh, I probably no. <laughs> did. <laughs> You're doing it to me now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. I was just surprised. No, um, no, well, I don't, I, no, no, I don't think I, I, I should just clarify. I don't think I really did, but I think I was more tempted to, especially if it was like my grandparents or my parents and they were saying things that I thought were like out of whack with nowadays. I think when I had that uh, primal feeling of like, you know, I'm going to exclude you from the tribe. I'm going to show you that I'm clever and you're not. But I think as you get older, mm -hmm. you become an adult and you have life experience and you have partners and friends and a life it's like why do i want to catch people out yeah yeah i mean well you know i think that that kind of speaks to the fact that a lot of these behaviors are being engaged in by people who are extremely maladjusted um, and have found community online in spheres where very antisocial and neurotic behaviors are kind of the currency of the day that's really interesting. I've wondered that a little bit. Like these people are a bit odd, but there's a lot of them. So then they're quite loud on Twitter. Yes, on Twitter especially. Um, you know, the mode of the mode of engagement on Twitter is something that 
I, I don't know, like anthropologically, it's fascinating. But if you spend too much time on the site and you just see the way people talk to each other, I don't know. I find it kind of upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. Are you on there a lot? Are you getting involved in arguments with people? I try not to. Um, I let me think about this. I mean, I spend certainly a lot of time on Twitter. Um, it's sort of a place I have to be professionally, whether I want to or not. Um, and I do think that I have a certain amount of skill at using the platform. Um, and, but I mean, it's, it's entirely possible to use Twitter and to avoid engaging in like the stuff that makes the platform toxic. You know, you don't have to dunk on people. Um, and if you have a big audience, I kind of think that you shouldn't. Um, I think, you know, this is maybe a version of the sort of like punching up, punching down way of, of, of looking at the world. But, you know, if you have a million followers, I don't think that you should be putting some like 200 follower account on blast just because they, you know, they said something obnoxious to you. Um, something I do a lot on Twitter is um, if somebody comes at me, you know, in a combative way, I'll ask them if they would like to deescalate. And then, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> How do you phrase um, that? But, like, hello, would you like to deescalate this? I say, you know, could I persuade you to deescalate or, you know, could I persuade you to dial it back a little bit? You know, it's, this is unpleasant. Does it make them realize like, because uh, I'll respond with kindness sometimes. There, there was a guy recently who who uh, was just messaging going, hi, nice to meet. I've just listened to you on Jordan Harbinger's podcast and uh, just going to see how you are. And then 20 minutes later, he wrote, um, yep, I realize now that you're a cunt. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and then he kept saying that for the like, 20 minutes. He's like, now I'm absolutely sure you're a cunt. And I was just like, oh, right. Okay. And I sort of said something. I can't remember what I said. Oh, no, I didn't reply to him. That's what it was. And then he said, hey, you're not replying to me. And I said, because you called me a cunt. <laughs> yeah. But that, then he was offended. So that, but I think sometimes if you're really nice, though, and you like you kill them with kindness, and you go back and, and you're like, you make them realize what they're doing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's sometimes possible. Not always, you know, and Twitter particularly really incentivizes this kind of... <laughs> aggressive, angry, talking past each other. Um, you know, I mean, the, the most viral tweets are where rather than replying to somebody to say, you know, I disagree with you and here's why, um, you know, somebody has like put this person out on blast to their whole, whole audience, you know, look at this idiot. Let's all make fun of him together. Um, and I mean, that's a very like middle school bullying dynamic that I, that I really don't like. And so I don't engage in that. And I try to, steer clear on the platform from people who do. If I see that somebody will do that a lot, I tend to preemptively block them just so that I don't, you know, so that we don't bump into each other. It's easier that way. Where do you stand on Woody Allen? Oh, um, so let's see. It wasn't, it wasn't a very subtle segue, was it? I should say- No, we just I, kind of <laughs> jumped right in. <laughs> you know why? Because I've been editing the podcast, obviously, a lot. And when I'm editing it, people say very interesting things. And then I go, oh, that's interesting. And then my, that's interesting. Even though it was very real, it sounds fake. So mm-hmm. I've just gone, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to now just go, mm-hmm. what do you think of it? Where do you stand on Woody Allen? <laughs> Don't say his neck. I mean, my, my stepmom's, his, his, 
his biggest fan ever. She's got like t-shirts of Woody all over her. She's got she interviewed him recently. She's she's like mad for Woody Allen. And then I did that again. Like I say that thing of like I know nothing about it, but instantly judged her because it's like oh Woody Allen's the bad guy. And and for those who don't know, or, well you can ex- you can explain the in case anyone listening doesn't know the Woody Allen allegations. Sure. So the allegations are that Woody Allen in, I want to say 1991, or was it 93? Um, in the in the midst of his extremely acrimonious divorce with Mia Farrow, she alleged that he sexually abused their adopted daughter, Dylan. Um, and this was investigated at the time um, by two separate bodies, one in New York and one in Connecticut, which is where the alleged assault took place. Um, at the time, the people who investigated this allegation determined that it hadn't happened. And they thought that Dylan had been coached by her mother to make this accusation, which was sort of in keeping with the general tone of the divorce proceedings. It was incredibly ugly. Um, For anybody who somehow is unaware of this, the divorce was in the works after Woody was uh, found to be involved with the adult adopted daughter uh, of Mia Sunyi Previn. So, um, and so they, they've been married for like ever now for something like 40 years or for 30 years. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it was a really acrimonious, um, really dramatic, really high profile divorce. And at the time this was just like a weird extra wrinkle. Then many years later, amidst the Me Too movement and sort of increased scrutiny on like old charges that might have been overlooked and so on, these allegations resurfaced, um, you know, with the help of New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof and also with the help of uh, Ronan Farrow, who is Mia's now adult son um, and who has made a real name for himself reporting on Me Too related stories. And amidst this media climate that is far, far friendlier to women who make allegations of abuse and assault, a different conclusion was reached, um, not based on new evidence, just based on kind of changing cultural norms that Woody Allen definitely did this and is definitely a monster. Um, So when you say, what do I think about it? What I think first and foremost is that it's really bizarre that people seem to believe that we're going to get a better sense of what is true about this incident and what actually happened by digging into it 30 years after the fact than the professional bodies who were charged with investigating it, who took it very seriously, you know, whose entire raison d'etre was to, um, you know, stop the abuse of children in the early 90s, like that they did a bad job, but we're going to get them, you know, they they somehow fell down on the job. I think it's really quite insulting to them. Uh, And I think it's kind of insanely hubristic to imagine that we're going to do better than they did. So there's that. Um, Yeah, I know, I should just say, I noticed the R in être, you really, you got the French there. Oh, yeah, I, I did take French when I was a kid. (laughs) that was good i liked it continue sorry oh thanks um yeah so you know and i was i was curious when this first started to 
resurface. Um, I was a kid at the time that the initial uh, allegations came up. And I sort of remembered it being like in the newspaper. I sort of remembered my parents who are both, you know, they're boomers. They're big fans of Woody Allen. I remember them sort of talking about it at the breakfast table or whatever. Um, so I asked my mom about it. You know, what was it? What was the cultural climate surrounding these charges back when they first came up? And she said that it was obvious to everybody. And I should add that my mom was a huge feminist, um, big second waiver, you know, raised me to be like very big on uh, women's rights and women's agency. She said that everybody felt it was extremely obvious at the time that Mia Farrow was vindictive and not particularly well and had definitely like made this all up as a way to get even with her ex-husband who she was very angry at. So I do think it's interesting that at the time this, this take on it was what was obvious to everybody, even culturally, this was where the conversation landed. And now based on absolutely nothing except a sort of a shift in the cultural tides everybody seems to like the the thing that you're supposed to believe and that you're supposed to say out loud is the opposite if he didn't do it it's a really sad uh final 20 30 years to quite an amazing prestigious life yeah it is um and i think that that's i don't know that's quite tragic in a way. Um, and I think that that's really when I when I wrote about this, you know, there was a new documentary recently about the case that was extremely one sided. It was done by the same pair of women who did this hunting ground documentary about like the quote unquote college sexual assault ep epidemic. Um, and they make a big thing, you know, they make no pretenses of trying to present both sides of the story. It's just not part of, of how they make films. They're like, we are victims advocates. So it was clear, you know, from this documentary that what they're really aiming to do is not to get justice for Dylan Farrow, who's an adult now and, you know, has moved on with her life, but to kind of present the definitive account of who Woody Allen is in a way that will basically tar his legacy so that when he does die, this will be in his obituary. Like this will be the headline, Woody Allen accused child molester and not Woody Allen, you know, comedic filmmaker. Yeah. And one of the, one of the biggest and best of all time, according to my stepmom anyway, I like his mm -hmm. movies as well. It's, it's a really difficult one dealing with those kinds of cases, isn't it? Cause I mean, obviously I was thinking the same thing with Amanda Knox last week, just like I'm going with, she definitely didn't do it, but you know, with Woody, if he did do it, it's it's like for us to be sitting here is is and just sort of going well maybe did maybe didn't is I suppose very offensive if Dylan were listening if if somebody like that were listening so it's just so hard to know how to talk about it isn't it Yeah it is I mean it's always difficult you know for somebody to say this happened to me and you know to say I'm not sure I believe that this happened to you and you know to be clear I don't think that Dylan Farrow is a liar. Um, I think she genuinely believes that this did happen, but it's just extremely possible to, you know, especially for somebody who's young and impressionable to persuade them that something happened to them that didn't. Um, I mean, there's, you know, copious research on this. And I mean, I tend to 
I tend to err on the side of, I mean, it certainly would be unusual um, for somebody accused of what Woody Allen is accused of to have never been accused of doing anything else. Um, and I think it's interesting that, you know, in trying to make it seem like these allegations hold water, there's all of this grasping around for things like, well, look at his movies. You know, there are there are younger women falling in love with older men in his movies, which to me is crossing a line that just ought not to be crossed. Um, and that's not just because I write books in which a lot of murders occur. Um, you know, I personally would not want people to think that I killed people just because I write about people killing people. Um, but yeah, you know, to to try to impugn somebody on the basis of, of fictional worlds that he created and that, you know, that he gave to us as entertainment um, to turn around and try to use that against him. I don't know. I just, I think that's really not okay. I would say it's not, it's not enough to go on, is it? And you're right. Like you probably, as far as I know, and you wouldn't tell me, you probably don't go around murdering people. But and you know, who knows? But if I told you, I would have to kill you. Oh my god! I had a psychopath <laughs> on here who said something like this. She's a natural psychopath, and it looked really. It was actually. I got like a heart. You know, I was really scared when you said it. It didn't scare me as much. Oh, I gotta work on my delivery. <laughs> she, she was just like, yeah. And there was a guy who was a psychopath who said a similar thing as well. Uh, really scared me. And at one point I stifled a yawn and he, he stopped talking and he, he was like, you're stifling a yawn. And I was like, no, no. He's a, he was a, a, sci- a neuroscientist who, who, who realized he was a psychopath later in life. Oh. Odd. Um, but yeah, what was I going to say about Woody? Oh yeah. Well, it's like, you know, I don't know. This, and this is, it's not fair to judge people on these things, is it? But if you read Lolita, it is hard not to make some guesses about what Nabokov might have been thinking in his mind. Is that really unfair? Oh yeah, that's totally unfair. Sorry. (laughs) I guess I secretly think that though. And I, and it's not fair then it's not, I don't know enough about Nabokov's life. Do you, you, does anyone know about Nabokov's life? Um, I know that he had a wife who was a very diligent assistant to him and licked his stamps so that he could focus on writing. Um, But (laughs) I think if you read Lolita and you come away, if you come away feeling that the the perspective of that book is sympathetic to Humbert Humbert, I think that you've missed something. You know, he's he's ridiculous and he's pathetic. Um, You know, it's the the view of him that is presented in the novel, even though he narrates it. um, You know, he's he's not like a likable guy or a hero. He's just the protagonist. Interesting. I think that's a fair point. Okay, then I will ignore those thoughts I was thinking as well about Woody Allen and all the 15-year-old girls that are in his movies when he's like having cocaine with them and stuff. I know what you mean. It's not fair to judge based on that stuff. You you are right. I'm being um, ridiculous um, and unfair. Tell me about um, masks, right? Because I'm about to go, <laughs> see, I'm doing it again. You know what I'll do? I'll put an advert point in there and then I'll just go. Okay. Tell me about masks. I'm about to go on a plane uh, and I hate it, and I've got to have 14 hours or 17 hours with a thing on my face. What do you think about masks? Um, I'm not a fan of them personally, like as a matter of taste. I really, really hate wearing them. I find them extremely uncomfortable. Um, I also, I teach yoga in addition to being a writer, and there was a period where, I mean, I'm actually, I'm having to do it again now because my town that I live in, just within the borders of the town, there is a mask mandate. So I have to I have to teach power yoga in a mask. Um, it's one of the most uncomfortable things that I have ever 
done on purpose. <laughs> and, um, you know, I see, I see a difference between saying that you dislike masks as a matter of personal taste and being a quote-unquote anti-masker, which I don't identify as. But the fact that, you know, it's impossible to talk about disliking masks without being labeled an anti-masker is an interesting wrinkle in the present cultural landscape. I mean, it's just that the the mask itself has been imbued with this enormous cultural and political meaning that's completely disconnected from any of the actual questions about how well they work or how well different kinds of masks work. Um, and what I've found, and this is sort of, you know, in keeping with other things that we've discussed here, you know, this in curiosity grips people who are sort of, you know, consumed by their desire to prove their right-sidedness. Um, it's very, very difficult to, at this point, ask for any kind of a sober cost-benefit analysis of masking as a practice for, you know, for slowing the spread of the pandemic. Um, and there's really a hostility to the suggestion that there might be costs at all. People do not want you to talk about it. And you're met with a real kind of vicious blowback if you try to. I hate it. I know exactly what you mean. Again, I wonder if like these views are secretly like most of us hold them and we don't want to say it. But I think most people are not either on that one Twitter side of just like everyone has to wear a mask, otherwise you're not one of us and you're part of the problem. And then the other side being like masks were invented by Bill Gates to stab you in the eye or something. And the reality you're is you're not like, wearing them correctly. If that's what you're <laughs> <saying>. <laughs> I know, I'm so I shouldn't do that anymore. I hate it, and it's a constant cause of um, sort of. Uh, argument, not argument, but what's what's less than well between my girlfriend and I, because I don't want to put it on, um, and it annoys me. And and you know what, there is a stubborn part of me as well that's like I don't like being told to do it, and then I'm a bit ashamed of that side of me because I don't want to be like oh you know every, we should do it whatever. But it, it does annoy me. I'm not putting that on, and then I can't I can't breathe that well. And these people are going like oh it's nothing. It's you like you say it's it's not nothing. It's not the worst thing ever. But it's definitely not nothing, especially if it's like 17 hours on a plane. I can't, I'm like constantly feeling my own breath going back on me, mm -hmm. get stressed out. Yeah, yeah. I feel really, you know, I mean, I've spent so much time smelling my own breath during this <laughs> pandemic and being like, I'm so glad that this isn't worse. Like if, if I had bad breath, this would be yeah. terrible. This would be unbearable. Maybe your, but doesn't your own breath not smell as bad to you because it's sort of coming from you? I don't know. Um I never thought about that. Now I'm worried. <laughs> if you put perfume on, right, you smell it a lot at first, and then like an hour later, you probably can't smell it on yourself because you've you go nose deaf. It's true. Yeah. Nose deaf. Um, <laughs> but you know the. Um, I mean, I don't know what uh, the masking regulations are in the UK. Here, we're told to wear, I mean, they cannot mandate N95s, even though those are really the only thing that is actually effective. If you look at the data on this, you strap a cloth mask to your face, you know, you're, you're wearing a security blanket. Um, you know, you're wearing something that makes you feel better and that will make other people feel better because they're seeing it on you, but it's not actually doing anything to stop the spread of disease. Um, and N95s are so uncomfortable that they, you know, they can't mandate them because nobody would comply. And so we're stuck with this mandate that is pure theater, um, which, you know, 
just, I, I don't know, I, that, that type of thing really bothers me. Um, you know, I'm not interested in restricting or disrupting my life and being physically uncomfortable just, you know, to show, to show that I'm a team player, to show that I'm on the right side and I'm not really interested generally in coddling the feelings of the type of person who cares a lot about that type of gesture. It's, it's so empty and it's so meaningless. Religious. It is. Yeah. And I mean, you know, again, like I'm on the left um, and I, I just, you know, if we were going to adopt a symbol of our, you know, kind of pious, wonderful tribal nature, like I, I wish it were something that weren't impossible to wear at the gym, uh, you know, kick, <laughs> Couldn't have been like a pin or something, but no, it has to be a face covering. But I mean, the other thing about masks is that, that, you know, they do have a cost. And I think at this point in the pandemic, you know, we're two years in and, and it's insane that we're not talking about it because, you know, for one thing, they are anonymizing. And at any other time, the implications of, of creating this, like, this subservient class of masked servants who, you know, whose faces you never have to see, who just like bring you stuff um, while you sit there unmasked enjoying your dinner. Like the optics of that would horrify people. And if you care about the working class, which people on the left used to, um, you know, it's the kind of thing that you should at least be interested in having a conversation about. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, they're quite isolating. And uh, my father is hearing impaired and, you know, that's already... It's already oh. really isolating to, you know, to be deaf or to be going deaf, but to not be able to see people's mouths, um, you know, the, the, the way that masks hamper communication is something that has wider implications, especially now that we've been wearing them for a long period of time. You know, you have kids who are trying to learn to read, who can't see their teachers vocalizing, you know, making shapes with their mouths to, you know, to understand how the written word corresponds with the spoken word, like that's going to have a ripple effect down the line. Um, and, you know, I think it's also just creating this loneliness. If you watch two people in masks trying to have a conversation, you see how often they have to, like, ask one to, you know, to repeat themselves or they pull down their masks to make themselves understood, you know, thus, like, completely eliminating any benefit they might have been getting from them in the first place. Um, you know, it's really, really difficult to to have a conversation with somebody while you're wearing a mask. And if you consider how often people in masks are like struggling to make themselves heard, then you have to realize how many conversations are just not happening at all because it's, it's too high a bar to clear. And, you know, all of these casual interactions that we used to have with strangers smiling at somebody on the street, you know, who you happen to make eye contact with or like chatting with the person who serves you at a cash register. A lot of that stuff is just disappearing from the landscape and taken individually none of these interactions might have been all that significant but if you just like categorically remove them um that is going to have ripple effects down the line you know i can't even imagine what it's like for people who don't have families you know, who might live alone who are having you know like half or or more less the the conversations and interactions with other people that they were before the pandemic it must be incredibly lonely I can see why it, I don't know, in some senses, I see why it's sort of divided in terms of support and, and negative feeling about the mask, um, the way it is, because it's like a collectivist thing in a sense to anonymize individuals. Uh, and then on the other, you know, if you are, I don't know, I feel like that kind of, 
the people we've been talking about, the censoring kind of person, is quite happy to, I suppose, censor parts of faces and and you know the other side, which I think you and I might stand on. We want individuals to sort of shine and 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 open up, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just I want to live in a high trust society and having people's faces covered is not really conducive to that. Um, and, you know, the attendant mindset where you start to look at your fellow humans, not as people, not as individuals, but as like disease vectors, where you see somebody's unmasked face and the first thing you feel is a spike of fear because how much virus are they spewing into the world? Um, that's not good. That's not good for a society. Um, and I think, you know, the the way that we talk about masking is in certain ways symptomatic of a a broader issue which is that since the pandemic we've allowed a lot of the sort of most neurotic and antisocial and fear-driven behaviors that people engage in to gain this moral gloss so that you know staying inside and never seeing people and you know and not embracing your friends and um you know not gathering and, and so on all of this stuff is suddenly like, I'm doing this because I'm a good person, because I care so much about other people. And this is what people will tell you. They're like, I haven't had dinner at a restaurant in two years because I just care so much about other people. And it's like, you haven't had dinner at a restaurant in two years because you prefer ordering takeout. Thank you, Kat, for coming on. It was really great chatting with you. Do, everyone, remember to get her psychological thriller book, No One Will Miss Her, in all the usual places, and follow her on Twitter and Instagram on at Kat Rosenfield. Our chat continues on patreon.com slash andrewgold, and you can also subscribe to that on Apple and YouTube for subscribers, so sign up to hear more and get other benefits. Kat was a really interesting guest, hugely intelligent, with an extensive vocabulary that forced me out of embarrassment to put more effort into the literary standard of my intro, you may have noticed earlier. What she said about the censorship of the left is one of my biggest pet peeves, people thinking they're acting in the name of righteousness, who are really just puffing up their own egos and ingratiating themselves with fellow bullies. It's good to have people like her exposing this, and I can see why the wonderful John Ronson suggested I interview her. I've uploaded this quite some weeks in advance, standing on this Buenos Aires rooftop burning as we speak, turning into a crisp lobster, so I don't have any new reviews to share right now. I'll just wish you a pleasant day whenever this is and wherever you are in the world. I'm some way behind you talking from the past, but I am hoping next week will either be part two with Jordan Harbinger or maybe comedian David Baddiel. That's if I get to speak to him in early February. Historian Peter Hughes is coming on to talk about statues amid the craze for taking down ones we find don't correspond with the morals of the day. Francesca Spector is coming on to talk about what she calls alonement or how to enjoy being alone in our modern world and a similar and equally important theme in the form of Emma Gannon of the Control-Alt-Delete podcast talking about her book Disconnected. There's a motorcycle passing by. Anyway, Disconnected is about how technology is taking over our lives. Just please don't disconnect from this podcast. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.